Hey Playwright, I'm Tori Rice. And I'm Mabel Reynoso. And welcome to Hey Playwright, a podcast about playwriting and life. Hey Mabel. Hey Dory. I've been thinking uh, a lot about how we curate our own lives. Mm, like social media curate or like mm, just in general? No, I'm thinking about the stories that we choose to tell, you know, like thing. I'm thinking even about things that you write down, like in a journal, you know, because if you think about it, that is kind of your your history that you're writing down. And someday, unless you burn those, somebody's going to read those. I I would like to burn them. I definitely don't want anyone you know okay can we talk about this for a second yeah so I've been reading the diary of Anne Frank with my little guy and I'm wondering how she would have felt knowing that people are reading her she gets she has some really personal things in there uh your thoughts on that because I as a person who who journals every day and thinks, oh my gosh, I would be mortified if anybody ever read these journals. Well, okay, so then why do you journal? Why do because you write it, that super personal stuff in be, there? Because it's my way to process everything, especially if anything is bothering me, I have to write it down. We all have expiration dates, as we've talked about, right? So, mm -hmm. but you don't know when it's going to happen. So you've got all this stuff written down. You, what You may not have control over when yeah. or what happens or you know what Tori, okay. you're giving my family way too much credit nobody cares okay <laughs> i know i think that's why i'm not too worried about it because i know that nobody cares but i would be terrified oh my gosh i have my journals from when i was a kid i yeah. would freak the the refrigerator out if somebody read those if like they were published and made available to the world and did that's... you just say freak the refrigerator out i why well, I, I took out the re i was going for the alliteration effect so i recently did look at some of my journals it went from middle school and high school and i ripped a bunch of stuff out you did rip it out mm -hmm. yeah because you know what i sounded i just I, I thought, oh my gosh, I sound like such an idiot. But that's, but that's, that is. I was, I was just embarrassed and I thought, well, this is ridiculous. You know, yeah, you're right. I mean, somebody somewhere, maybe Sadie or maybe my kid at some point would have been interested or found it amusing. But in the moment, I thought this is, no one needs to read this. This is dumb. <laughs> That's but, what I thought. But okay, I guess I mean if you are if you do not have the expectation of anyone reading it, but I I even though I I look I cringe at my writing from when I was a tween and teen. Um, I'm still glad that I have it. So it's proof that I have evolved. That I'm not the same person, even though in my heart I often feel like I got stuck at seventeen. Um, decades later, I'm still 17 on the inside. But going back to my question about Anne Frank, mm. 
she did I not give consent to that. And right, but obviously, we're, we're I'm grateful that 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 exists. My son is really interested in it. I mean, that's fascinating, right? That he he's a little guy and he's he's into it. Um, so, but yeah, it's it's weird. It trips me out, especially when you know we read about the no spoilers out there, but it gets very personal. So sure. And well, even because like, she because he, she's maturing as a young woman, yeah. so yeah. But mm-hmm. even the relationship with her mother, like, would she want people to know about how she, like, her thoughts about her mother? Because she, she was very harsh towards her mother. You know those complicated mother daughter relationships, that's right? right? Yeah. So but I, I think know. that's what uh, appeals to us is the humanity, oh, yeah. right? And, oh yeah, and and it's relatable and totally um i don't know yeah that that's yeah it's hard to say right yeah she didn't say hey yeah you can use this what about anyone in your family have you have you thought about taking down uh, histories or interviewing anyone in your family to try to capture their histories so that it's something for your kids to look at or for your you know generations of your family to come yes my mom she's getting older she can get mad that i said that (laughs) but uh but she you know we start asking her questions and my mom is actually a really good storyteller and she's really funny she my mom is a really good joke teller which is very weird if you know my mom you would never think that that was something that she's good at but she's actually really good at telling jokes I'm horrible at telling jokes by the way but uh but she's really funny and she has really interesting stories so John is always like oh my gosh we have to film your mom it's the way that she tells the story of how she and my father met and then their time in Europe because when they after they got married um like my mom was 18 when they got married and then oh, they and then were they young. yes and then they ran off to Europe and my dad was an artist and my mom was like selling his paintings and they were just doing the whole bohemian thing but to to hear her tell the story is so funny I was thinking I really had some missed opportunities on my end because I've I've had a lot of losses in my family the past couple of years on uh, both sides, you know, my um, paternal side and maternal side. And so um, I feel like, wow, I really missed the chance to to get some of that family history. Um, yeah, so I'm grateful. I'm glad that I've at least kept cards and letters because those are stories too. So mom i i want to talk to you (laughs) i want to preserve some of our family history you know um i think it's important and and it'll be something that i think um my kid will cherish or not (laughs) you can cut that she will she will (laughs) no but just those family stories i think i think it's important and you know if I were to write it and my sister were to write it, it would be two different stories. Everyone That's... remembers an event differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a great play called The Memory of Water. And it's uh, these siblings and how they have remembered 
the same event differently. Wow. And even how they have taken somebody else's something that happened to somebody else but they think that it happened to them how sometimes those memories are fluid and kind of mesh and and that person said that didn't happen to you i that's it in i feel like that's come up with people i know a lot not not with me personally like me you know trying to take on somebody else's memories but just hearing other people kind of bicker like that didn't happen to you that happened to me <laughs> and how people remember remember things differently yeah yeah so so why are we talking about histories Tori? we are talking about that because the person that we are going to be interviewing today um happens to be well versed in oral history storytelling. Josh Irving Gershik's plays include Dear One, Love and Longing in Mid-Century Queer America, Coming Attractions, and Blue Bonnet Court, winner of the GLAAD Award for Outstanding Los Angeles Theater. He is a writer-director, a winner of the Alfred C. Kinsey Award, and he is a member of the Authors Guild and the Dramatist Guild of America. Please visit our website, heyplaywright.com, to get Josh's full bio. Josh, it's so nice to have you with us today. Thank you for asking me. So, Tori, you have met Josh before, but the first time that I met Josh was a few weeks ago during the Saving Stories event at the Dramatist Guild, where we were talking about this project where we collected stories from storytellers that were in um, skilled nursing facilities. So I got to talk a little bit about my process, but was completely blown away when the mic was handed over to Josh and he started talking about oral histories and being, being an oral historian and a dramatist. Based on what you have shared with us about your work, that is something that you know how to do very well. Well, you know, it's all about telling a story whatever the medium, whether it's an oral history, it's a play, it's a news story, a feature story, a short story, a novel, it's all about telling a satisfying story. I was very influenced when I was a kid reading Studs Terkel. Mm. The, the um, now, now dead, <laughs> famous, American oral historian who wrote about World War II and the Depression and from the every man and every woman's point of view. I loved his books and I think that I was a listener right from the gate. I grew up with older parents who, I, um, a working mother, she did, so I, I amused myself a lot. I was by myself a lot or with her doing homework at her workplace in the back room, listening. And um, my parents were older and um, not as vigorous as younger parents. And so I, I sat around with them a lot, listening, listening to stories, the stories of their friends, listening to the stories of their colleagues when I was in my mom's office after work, I would listen to her negotiations. And she had a number of clients who were immigrants at, and I would listen to their stories. So I think I was set up as an, 
at an early age to listen and to be a proficient listener. And that's the key to oral his history taking. You could say it's also the key to playwriting or any writing. A writer has to be a good listener. And so I began to collect oral histories in the 1980s, oral histories of uh, queer folk. When I was a kid, I would hear these stories from my parents and I would always wonder, realizing at an early age that I was a, a queer little person myself, what would these stories be like told from a queer point of view? In the day we would say lesbian, gay. But I thought, when I'm old enough, I'm going to start asking people. And so I began to do that in the 80s. And, and um, I've used those oral histories on stage, in book form, um, in uh, uh, storytelling events, you know. So that's really where it all began, and that's kind of a that's a long-winded way of saying it. You fear that big gust of wind that just came in? That was me <laughs> going on. I I would much rather hear your gust of wind. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's why we have you here, because uh, you are an expert storyteller, and I feel like you have really found a voice in that with um, taking these oral histories and then dramatizing them. So I would like to hear how how one does inform the other. How are you able to take that, some oral histories or something that you've heard, maybe it's interviews, and then start to marry it into this uh, drama, dramative form? Mm -hmm. Is that the right word Dr for it? Dramatic. <laughs> dramatic form, yes. <laughs> As you know, Mabel knows from her works in Saving Stories, people don't really speak in declarative English sentences. They don't speak normally with a decided beginning, middle, and end. They'll often start just like I did <laughs> a bit earlier. They'll start in one place and then take an off-ramp, hopefully come back, take another off-ramp, off -ramp, sometimes never come back to their original point at all. So in crafting a monologue from an oral history, there's a lot of very careful attention to detail. You're, you're, you've spent a lot of time with the person you've asked a number of questions, you've done research uh, on the specific event or era that you're talking to that person about, and then what you have typically is hours of tape turned into transcript. And then really, it's kind of a sacred duty before I even touch a transcript, I, I honestly, I pray. You know, I really ask to be guided, that I, 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 in my work, I preserve the heart and essence and voice of this person, that I am not heavy-handed. Uh, and so then I begin, and I usually take eight, nine, ten passes through a manuscript, a transcript, rather. And, you know, the very beginning is, okay, what is, what's duplicative? What's the story? I guess the first question is, what story am I telling? Am I, is this a, I'm going to talk about one event, especially if I'm crafting a monologue. You know, there's the oral history that you craft for a book where someone 
has the attention and time to read a whole the whole narrative arc of someone's life. But when you're crafting an oral history, uh, a monologue from an oral history, then you're usually looking to present one event. So I'm looking, you know, what what is my theme? What is my theme? And then I'm very carefully paring away everything that's not that theme. And then Again, always with this idea of preserving the voice, preserving the essence. This is their story, not your story, told in their specific way, not in the way I might tell it. So then, you know, there's continuous surgery, very, very uh, attentive, fine tuning. And again, because people don't speak, necessarily don't retell a story beginning and middle and end then there's oftentimes a a very careful replacing restructuring of the elements okay this here's the beginning here's the middle here's the end and then it's 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 that kind of gentle very precise winnowing that happens over time and again, I might not have what I think of as a finished product for 8, 10, 12 drafts. How involved is the person whose story you are telling? How involved are they in the process of developing that script? And I imagine it might vary, right? But is it important to get the blessing of that person? Or at, at what point... Do you feel like, okay, I've gathered this information, I'm crafting this story, and now does it take on this kind of life of its own? Or do you, do you pass drafts through that person? How does that work? I, I almost never do that. Okay. When I approach someone, I'm interested in their experience of a certain historical event or a certain period. I'm very upfront about what I'm doing. I tell them. I might say, Tori, I'd like to talk to you about your experience in the ACT UP movement in the 1990s. I read an account and it said that uh, you were responsible for X. I'd like to talk to you about that. And I'd like to talk to you about that in connection with a play I'm writing or a monologue I'm crafting for a, um, a play of monologues, like something I'm working on right now is called Queer Land, and it is a collection of uh, uh, monologues from queer America from the 20th and 21st century. So I might say, Tori, I'm working on this very specifically. I Would you be willing to talk to me about this? And you might say, oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I'm very clear with you, and I... I restate what I've said in email so that there's documentation. Mm -hmm. And then when I, we sit down to talk, I'll turn the recorder on and I'll say, I'm talking to Tori Rice today. Today is Sunday, April 18th, 2021. I'm in North Hollywood. She's in San Diego. We're talking about Tori's experience during the 1990s and the, uh, and the ACT UP movement. And Tori, you are aware I'm recording? And you say, yes. And I say, and I have your permission to do so? Absolutely. And you're giving me uh, your permission to tell this story. Yes, there, it's all there. 
And I just like to be uh, transparent. I won't secretly tape someone and then turn that into a monologue. That's just, that's not um, honorable. If I'm really interested in your story, then I can have the uh, courage to ask you for it. And then the um, reasonableness to hear yes or no. Sometimes it's happened where someone doesn't have a, the whole piece of the story. So I will, I've interviewed uh, three people on the same topic. I, I, for this show Queerland that I'm working on right now, I did a, I did a monologue of a mid-century roller derby star. And yes! she is a, a really a conflation of three different people who gave me permission to tell their story. You know, and each of them knew, yes, this is what you're doing and I agree to it. The name of the, the, the star is totally changed, but that character has elements of each. And mm. so when you when you speak to these individuals, do you tell them you are not going to be fully represented as yourself, but you might be an amalgam of, of mm -hmm. several different so you're you you you're you're upfront about that. Yeah, and my language might reflect that. I might say Mabel, I, I would like to interview you for X. I'd like to create a character based on you, mm. you, and yours will be the single voice. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm. Versus, Mabel, I, I would like your experience. I'd like to weave that into a character. Yours may not be the only voice, but I'm very interested in your perspective. Right, okay. So, and that's, uh, there's another one I just did, um, she is a mid-century car hop, a little queer car hop in 1960s Iowa, realizing something about herself. And I just, I remember drive-ins as a kid. They don't really exist in that same way anymore, but I like to tell the stories of average everyday queer folk. And uh, hers is the single voice. The character is completely based on her. There's no mm. other person who has informed this piece. Josh, I'm going to ask maybe a dumb question. Maybe no, people know, it. but Please. what is what is a car hop? Oh, oh I love it. You don't know it. These people, usually women, would they were dressed in this cute little outfit, like a kind of a usherette little hat and an Eisenhower jacket and a pair of like military style trousers with the stripe down. And they were either on striped down the side and they were either on roller skates or they're in sneakers. Mm -hmm. The the Mel's drive in in my town, uh, the the car hops were sneakers, not skates. But uh, and uh, you would drive in, you would pull in and there was a little drive in movie style speaker on the driver's side and you would hit the button, not unlike you do at Starbucks today. You hit the button and you say what you want cherry coke fries hamburger i'm talking about you know it's a diner and uh and then when it was ready the car hop would bring it out on a tray big big tray with an arm that attached specifically to your car door and so these places were popularized especially after world war ii when people could buy a car and there were also drive-in movies and drive-through banking and all these things that you could do never having to leave your car. So this character is a teenage car hop in Iowa realizing that she's 
a queer little thing in Iowa in 1960, and uh-oh. So you've told us a little bit about your approach as an artist. So could you tell us more about that, about how you approach your play ideas? And I think this would also tie into one of the other questions we had for you about your mission. Well, my mission, and I, I love that question because for years I didn't have a mission. And because I didn't have a mission statement, then I wouldn't know w which thing to say yes to. So I think a mission statement is really important. So my, my mission really is to illuminate the lives of LGBTQ Americans who've largely been hidden from history. Everything I do lifts that up. Everything I do, every story I tell, generally speaking, is one in which the life of an LGBTQ uh, person is revealed. I wanna make you think and I wanna make you laugh. I wanna make you learn something in a um, in a fun, non-stuffy didactic, <laughs> in a non-didactic way. I want you to learn something and never even know it, you know, you learned it because like that spoonful of sugar with the medicine, it just went down so easily and I changed your perspective, maybe. How did you decide to write a mission statement? Was that something that you just, for a project you're working on and somebody asked you for it? Or like, because I think that's, I think what you said is really important and it does help. Is it serving the, the mission? So how did you come to that, to, well, to having a mission statement? Many people were asking me to do things and I didn't really know how to choose because I'm a curious person. They all sounded interesting. I could make anything sound interesting. I could add a zip to almost anything. But let's be realistic. I, I don't have all the time or energy in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I can't do everything. So by what measure do I choose? So I had to really think about it. And, you know, it's a longer mission statement. I just usually talk about the tail end, but I say my mission is to create high quality thought provoking work that entertains, educates, up and uplifts, particularly illuminating LGBTQ people who've been hidden from history. So once I created that, then I knew what to say yes to. Does this project uh, illuminate the life of a, a queer person who's been hidden from history? Oh, no, okay. No, well, thank you for asking me. I'm really honored and I'll have to pass. I was going to ask you, how do you politely decline? I just say, oh, with enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> That's the parenth parenthetical thing in the script, with enthusiasm. Thank you for thinking of me. I love that. I'm not able to do that. But I thank you. And uh, I, I often also like to, you know, pass things on to other people, I think, that might be interested. So I might say, well, you know, that's really not for me, but my friend Tori might like it. And here's her email or my friend Mabel, I'd like that. Uh, why don't you ask them? That sounds some, like something that is more suited to them. Oh, you know, I appreciate that too. Um, being able to also um, include other artists 
that you know especially if you know in your heart hey this might not be the right fit for me but i know in my tribe of artists there is someone that this is the right fit for well you have to be generous stinginess i think comes from the idea that there's not enough there's just one thing and i better hop on it right. there's only enough for me which is in my own experience untrue so mm -hmm. I like to be generous and everything it's, it's not for me and I like to help someone else out and I you know I do believe that what goes around comes around and um, there's sufficient there's enough for everyone and just be generous. So Josh um, you shared with us Dear One. Josh can you tell us a little bit about the project what it is what, what it's about? Dear One is a play that's based on letters to one magazine. One magazine was the first ever LGBTQ magazine widely published, available on newsstands. It was published here in Los Angeles starting in 1953. As you can imagine, people lived largely closeted lives. They didn't have communities of people to talk to. So they really poured out their hearts in letters to the editor, mm -hmm. many of which were published in the magazine. Uh, and so they would talk, these, uh, these magazines were available in large cities on newsstands, Washington DC, New York, Los Angeles, possibly San Diego. But the bulk of the 4,000 issues that went out every month went to small towns, yeah. rural spots, where people received these magazines in a plain brown wrapper. And the readers really may not have had a sense of community yet. Their ma the magazine was their community, their only contact with people like themselves. And so people wrote to the editors about all kinds of things, about their hopes and dreams, about their desires, about what they wanted to achieve and whom they wanted to attract, about troubles at work and all about um, a family relations, good and bad. So it's an extraordinary collection of letters and thousands and thousands of letters. And they're in this play, they're presented in chronological order from the magazine's inception to 1953 to the mid-60s when it ceased publication. How were you able to get the copies of all of the magazines with the letters then go through and decide which letters to include? Yeah. Well, these are all, they are, are, they are archived at the one uh, gay and lesbian archives at USC. It's mm. the largest repository of queer material anywhere in the world. So the, they're, the, the actual magazines are there and also wow. thousands and thousands of letters, many of them, um, many of them unorganized yet, handwritten, typewritten on onion skin, on postcards, on fine, uh, fine paper, you know, a notebook binder paper. People from all walks of life wrote, uh, you know, typed, hand wrote these letters and sent them in. So um, some of them are 
are readily available, the ones that were printed in the magazine, but the more interesting ones are the ones that I had to mine for, mm. I had to really search for, and that is endless hours going through boxes and boxes yeah. and boxes. Wow. And <gasps> many of the letters are quite long, as you can imagine. Say, Mabel, you were all alone in a place you thought you were, and you sat down to write a letter and you ended up writing, you know, just uh, pages and pages about your life. Of course, that necessarily, that can't be performed. Right. So the task at hand was to take Mabel's letter about her life and craft that into a deliverable monologue. Again, retaining all the heart, the specific voice, the essence, but uh, making it performable. That seems like an enormous task. That... It's, it's a sacred responsibility, really. Absolutely. Because in many cases, this is all that remains of that person. <sighs> oh. the, you know, the most heartbreaking stories, talking about the preservation of LGBTQ history, was there were times that I was at the archive, digging through, sometimes with graduate students, sometimes not, and someone would bring in a box of letters or diaries and say, oh, this person died and his, his relatives came and threw everything in the trash and I, I, I dug this out of the dumpster at thinking you might want to save it. <gasps> oh, I just got chills. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Ugh. The letters that you chose to include do create, as you said, you, th these people didn't think they had a community, but the letters that that you've included in this story um and the 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 actual title is Dear One, Love and Longing in Mid-Century Queer America. It does create this community. So you get to hear all of these different perspectives, all of the longing, as you say in your title, um, and the discovery of love. You know, one that I'm remembering is from the, the mother. Oh, yes. The mother who, um, it, you know, they that she and her husband, uh, the the son says, you know, I'm I'm gay, and so she invites him and friends to come and celebrate, and talks about just what a wonderful community of people are spending time at her home, and I, it was so moving to me to hear that mother's love come out of the letters. So the letters that you chose just really are. They give the actors something too that is just full of emotion and just ta these tangible life experiences that this just really come through. Um, and that is an art, Josh, to be able to pick the, the letters, of course, to choose what is going to go in and create this dramatic event. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I love that letter too, because it's surprising. Yes. We don't expect a Midwestern mother in the 1950s to say, I love my 
using the term of the time, homosexual child, and I love <laughs> all of his friends. And I think she says something like, and they're all delightful. I just love them all. Yes. You don't expect that level of acceptance in that part of the country. Right. Also. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm so happy you were surprised and delighted by that letter. Yes. I tried also to uh, take a cross-section of letters. There are letters from... Uh, there are letters from trans writers. There are letters from African-American writers. There yes. are Latinx letters. Ruben's letter. I love yes. Ruben's yes. letter. <laughs> yes. I loved how he signed it at the end, right, on behalf of all of his homies. I love that. I was just like, <laughs> yeah, Ruben, it's hard. Uh, there was also so much heartbreak, too, though, because I felt I was really, I could feel the fear, too. I was really scared for some of these writers, especially the ones that were looking at prison time and just oh begging for help. And I thought, my God, to be in that situation where the only safe place that you felt you were seen and understood is through this medium of writing and yes. trying to reach out and yes. make that connection yes. with people who were uh, your your community your your tribe of people and just feeling so alone yes without giving any spoilers away i want to say that i really appreciate the final letter so i appreciate how you how that ended thank thank you for saying that that letter is called the revolution mm -hmm. and i very mindfully was looking for a letter that would give us a kind of premonition of things to come mm. because as you can see in the story we start in the early 50s and there's um there's very much a mood of let's show people that we're just like them we're just we put our pants on one leg at a time we're good americans and then as we get close to I think the assassination of Kennedy. As we get close to that, there's a real shift. And I'm thinking that the world was changing and the queer world was changing. And the tone of the letters becomes much more defiant, less accommodating, more, uh, more in the tone of, you know, we're here, we're queer, get over it. Not quite. But we're not going to take this anymore. And the revolution is, is um, an echo of that. There's also the letter of the young chap from Florida who talks about witch hunting. And he's mm -hmm. just not putting up with that anymore. And mm -hmm. he says, in essence, I don't care. They can come after me. I'll fight. You know. Or even yes. uh, the, the um, letter from the, the airline stewards from Miami, I think that's in the late 50s. And the backstory of that is a, an airline steward was tricking and these uh, punks lured him and took his money and killed him. And this became, um, this was a triggering event in Miami to round up all the queer folk because mm -hmm. Aren't we the cause of this problem? And um, 
the airlines began discharging their 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 queer stewards and whatnot, and the 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 one steward writes to one magazine, um, saying asking for help, saying I think I can get as many as like fifty people together for a protest. Now we say fifty, you know. Um, the first women's march in L.A. was three quarters of a million people after uh, 45 was inaugurated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we say 50, but 50 queer folks standing saying we're not going to take it anymore. That's astonishing for the late 50s. But also, I think through the letters that you can see that the the gay power movement or uh, the gay rights movement, as it was called in the 1960s and 70s, didn't really begin with Stonewall in 1969. A sense of self, a consciousness of a community and a, um, uh, a, a call to action, a willingness to rise actually occurred, began to occur in the late 1940s. And uh, queer folk were coming together, were having a sense of themselves as a, a political force. Now, what happened in, in, in 1969 at Stonewall in New York City, of course, New York City likes to think that everything happens and starts in New York City. <laughs> that, yes, that touched off a, 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 a greater awareness of the movement, but arguably it began here in Southern California way, way back in the late 40s and early 50s. There's so much history behind us and it's so easy to not, to forget, not know, not be aware, just move on with your life and think of only the here and now. But hearing this, hearing this history is so important and so vital to, because we don't know, nothing, nothing is guaranteed that, that, I mean, gosh, if we didn't have a scare, you know, with 45 and how things were going, like it's so important to continue to do this work and be aware that that there are no guarantees that 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 you know it's a, it's a continuous fight for yes. for dignity uh you know for for dignity for all really yes it is it's you know the struggle continues i was just thinking hearing those letters how a lot has changed and yet not and and then i was wondering Josh, where you think we are today? Like, why why is it important today to hear those stories? Well, I think you you really said it that the struggle continues, that the the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Mm-hmm. That we we haven't arrived. Barack Obama often talked about you know forming that more perfect union. And uh, Martin Luther King and others have talked about the ideal of America, which we haven't yet achieved. But the the story hasn't been written yet. We're mm. we're continuing to do the do to work toward greater equality, inclusion, acceptance, understanding, and empathy. And I think it's important to tell these stories so that people get a sense of queer folk as human. You know, we, we have progressed. We have progressed. 
in the early 70s, I think it was Time or Newsweek did a survey asking its readers, do you know any gay men or lesbians? At the time, they weren't even thinking about bi people or trans people. They were just thinking about gay men and lesbians. Do you know any? And the readership responded with something like 21% having known a queer person. 21%. Now, if you did a random survey, I'm sure if you stood in front of a grocery store and said, hi, excuse me, do you know a gay or lesbian person? Almost everybody would say, oh, yes, my dentist, my dog groomer, oh, my next door neighbor, my sister, my brother, my child. It's like, yeah, what, whatevs. Um, fewer people, though, today were in that spot where fewer people know trans people. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, the work continues. Mm -hmm. You know, the work continues mm -hmm. to humanize all of us, all people. And um, to uh, grow in understanding and effectiveness, to broaden our viewpoint, to get bigger, not smaller. On the other hand, like some of the garbage I hear, you know, I think, oh my God, this is the same crap I heard as a child. I grew up during the busing era, and this is the same bullshit, white fright. It's the same bullshit. Same bullshit, different day. So, like, people, please, the idea as, as a species is to get smarter. <laughs> not dumber. We're supposed to get... <laughs> we're supposed to... Evolve. We're supposed to evolve, <laughs> not devolve. Stop that. Devolution. <laughs> Devolution. You know, so, yes. And I think that the 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 events of the past few years have demonstrated that we can't get comfortable. Yes. You know, there mm -hmm. are plenty of pinhead, dumbass, sexist, racist idiots out there. The, the work continues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, you know, and that includes my own work growing in understanding and effectiveness. That's the goal. That's the aim. So I do think these voices and the voices of all people are important. And that's one of the things that I've really intentionally done is pursued the voices of everyday people. I've stayed away from the marquee names. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody does the Ellen story. Yeah. Everybody is, uh, everyone knows Laverne Cox. Mm -hmm. and, and good, excellent, I'm glad. But I'm interested in the quiet story of the secretary, the nurse, mm -hmm. the, the, the grocery store checker, you know, who arguably have much more at stake, mm -hmm. much less of a cushion. They don't, they don't have the cushion of notoriety or fame or a contract with Netflix. Generally speaking, this is not true with Dear One which came to me as a request. The One Archive was having its, I think it's 60th anniversary event and they needed some entertainment. And the board of trustees, the head of it at the time was a friend of mine and she called me hurriedly and said, oh my God, 
We don't have, we forgot the entertainment. We don't have any entertainment. We do have this stack of letters, but we're not quite sure what to do with them. Um, can you help us? It was, it was, you know, just like a month or little what? more than a month. What? And so I said, yes. And that was the first group of letters was, it was a group that had been mined from another researcher. And um, I took those letters and edited them into mini monologues. And then, and, and then we just kind of flew from the seat of our pants. Um, and that's how that started. That, that, first, that first version is not at all what it is today, but that's really how it started. But generally speaking, a place inspires me. Mm. My first play was Blue Bonnet Court, set in 1944. And I had lived in Austin around the corner from a derelict motor court called the Blue Bonnet Court. And one day, it was on the way to my laundromat, and one day I passed it, and I just looked at it, and these characters jumped into me. And I didn't know what to do with that. That was probably around 1993. I didn't know what to do with it at the time I was working as a, a reporter and a teacher. So I just made some notes and I moved on. And later I came back to, to that piece and that place. The second play I wrote was called Coming Attractions. And that took place in 1979 in a... <laughs> In a, in a motel in Palm Springs that was the secret winter hideaway of queer Hollywood. And uh, there again, it was, the story came from the place. Um, another piece um, called um, Assisted Living, a radio play, which hasn't, it's not yet finished. Uh, I don't like the second act conclusion, but um, that was inspired by a derelict, um, um, uh, oh, I'm losing the name of it, uh, a, a, um, a, a courtyard apartment. Mm. Mm. And many of those were losing those now as developers buy up these beautiful, beautiful, green, lovely, lazy spaces and put up these concrete monstrosities. So I'm very inspired by place. And usually in those places, a character comes to me. And then it's just my job to follow it. We're going to move on to the, the Asking for a Friend segment, where we ask you a question uh, that is um, completely random, but also kind of in, in line with what we were talking about today with, with your work. So, Asking for a Friend. Josh, if you could receive a three-page handwritten letter from anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and why? It would be from Barbara Stanwyck, the great 20th century actress who I think never really got her due. I love her. I've been fascinated with her all my life. I'm so mad at myself that she lived until I think 89 or 88 or 89. I'm so damn mad at myself that I was not smart enough to 
pick up a tape recorder and go knock on her door. Uh, I think she was a great, great actress and um, not widely promoted because she was never under contract to a specific studio. And I think today she would be like Jodie Foster. Mm. She would be directing and producing. But in those days, of course, an actress was generally not given those opportunities. I also have always suspected that she was some shade of lavender Mm. Um, by gay something. She sets my pinger off. There And there have been several books that have been written um, talking about that. Mm -hmm. I just think she's a fascinating character. What was the thing that first interested you about her? Was it like some movie that you saw and were like, hmm, something's going on with her? (laughs) (laughs) I think I saw her really as a kid in the Big Valley. Mm. And I thought, that is a butch girl if I've ever, ever seen one. (laughs) But of course, you know, that was not her best work. Then um, when I was in my late teens, I would go to the Castro Theater in San Francisco, which was a revival house. Fantastic, with a Wurlitzer organ intact. And I mean, it was just a, a movie palace. I'm certain it's still there. It is a landmark. And I saw Double Indemnity. There and wow, and then I just went back and uh, she did a lot of pre-code films. The code, uh, the motion picture code, was instituted in the early thirties, nineteen thirty-three, I think. And but before that, you could do all kinds of things on film. There, you know, there were mentions of queer folk and people that were in the same bed together, and um, there were certain moralists around the country who protested this lack of decency. And uh, and they would uh, just like in Boston, just cut up a film and show it without the naughty bits. And the motion picture producers in L.A. were horrified by this. So they thought, well, to avoid our pictures being cut to ribbons, we will institute this code. And, you know, it, it you couldn't mention queer folk or even suggest them. Uh, couples had to be in twin beds. Crime could never pay, all of these things. But she was in a number of pretty naughty pre-code Hollywood movies, Night Nurse, Babyface, a young woman comes to New York and sleeps her way to the top of corporate America. <laughs> so, And I, what I love about her also is she was a fine dramatic actress, could play a heavy, which after Double Indemnity, she never played anything else except on TV. But she was a wonderful comedian. Meet John Doe and um, and um, uh, uh, a number of other pictures that were just so good. But now, if you have anyone else that you're interested in talking to, yes, muster up that courage, yes. right? right? So that no more missed opportunities. Right here we go. Right. Well, Mabel, <laughs> didn't you say that after you interviewed the person that you interviewed for Saving Stories? She died. That's an like, oh my God, what if you hadn't had the courage to approach her? People have a shelf life. They, you know, we're here, we're here for so long and then, and then we're gone. And either who gets to tell our story or no one gets to hear our story. You know, it, it goes, you know, it can go one or the other way. And so, so yes, very lucky to have been a part of that. So, all right. 
And now, now comes the the uh, the terrifying or exciting dun, dun, dun. or thrilling part where we where we put people to work. Josh, do you have a writing prompt for our listeners? A writing prompt, writing exercise, something to something to get people working. Well, two things occur to me. One, building on what you said. The first thing is just advice, which is just do it. Put your pants in the chair and do it. Because by not doing it, what are you going to miss? If Mabel hadn't answered that, you know, that, that intuition, like, oh, I feel some urgency here. I better do it. She might have missed, she would have missed this story and it would have been lost to all of us. So there's never mind about feeling like doing it, just do it. I think the second thing for a writing prompt, which might be interesting for listeners, is just go to someone, someone you know, and ask them a, to tell you a story about some event. Maybe you know that they were there in a certain time or place and interview them for 20 minutes. Transcribe that and then try to craft a monologue out of that small conversation, looking for the beginning, the hook, the middle, and the end. That satisfying end that somehow is going to bring us back to the beginning. And 20 minutes, I think, is a good amount of time because 20 minutes will not result in a, a completely unwieldy transcript. If you're a slow typist like I am, you know, it's generally uh, one to four. For every minute of conversation, it's gonna be four or five minutes of transcription easily. So try that as an exercise and see if you too cannot craft a monologue from a conversation. I'm gonna try it. Try it. <laughs> I am, I'm gonna try it. Get it. I love it. It's it's all wonderful. We have learned so much. This has been. I knew. I I I knew it. We right, knew. right, yeah. Tori. I, after yep. we got off the the saving stories thing, I told Tori we have to bring him on the show. So oh, thank you. That's sweet. I, I, and thank and you. actually, your name had come up before when we first started our podcast, and we were um, thinking of who we'd really like to talk to, and I had met you at the DG conference. Yeah in La Jolla a, you know a couple of years ago which is that's where I first met you and then we realized hey we have this friend in common Wendy Waddell oh yes and the then, goddess. yeah yes and then um and then of course you facilitated at New Village Arts mm -hmm. last year that panel discussion that I was on and so we yes. got to reconnect and talk again yes. and I'm like oh my gosh and then COVID happened I'm like I would love to talk to Josh I'd love to have Josh on yeah thank you well, I hope that it's, it was, you know, we've talked a lot about beginning, middle, and end, and saying things in declarative English sentences, and I fear that I've gone far afield. It seems, like, really busy. But that is, but if we're not putting it in play format, if we're just talking the way that we do, as, as you mentioned, that is, I think, the exciting part of a conversation, that we are allowed to... Uh, you know, go off into other worlds and can and live in those worlds for a while and chat and then 
Yeah, it's all good. That's how that's how we are as human beings, and I think that's okay. Absolutely. All yeah. Right. <laughs> it's wonderful you can digress as much as you want Josh. yes digress <laughs> thank you well thank you for having me thank you josh thank you so much josh oh it was such a pleasure talking with you today oh what a wonderful conversation tori oh so fabulous i just enjoyed it so much and i felt like there's just so much more to talk about I I, I want to know what else he will teach me now that I know what car hops are. Sky's the limit. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, Tori, we are nearing end of play. And oh, my goodness. Yes, we didn't even talk about that. We both are racing. Well, we're not racing to the finish line. We're strolling leisurely to the yes. finish line because we finished our... Our work. You yeah. wrote like ten billion plays. Yeah, that was crazy. I did. I did do a lot of of writing during April. So did you, though. I know some of it was plays. Some of it was novel writing. It's still writing. But for into play, into play ends on April thirtieth. And so those of you, you dramatists out there who've been writing feverishly through this month of April you need to give yourselves a big pat on the back for making it through the finish line of this. We are giving you a virtual high five. Look, Tori, I'm high fiving you right now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Boom. Uh, Boom. We're not, we are not good at this. We are not. We are no. not. Okay. So great. <laughs> it's great. Um, but yes. So congratulations to everyone who participated in end of play. Congratulations to those of you who didn't finish but thought about it. And congratulations to, to those of you who are just listening to this podcast because just just we're just happy to have you and you're making good choices with your life. <laughs> you choosing Hey Playwright means you're making good choices. <laughs> yes. Spoken so, like a true mom. Make good choices. Make good Listen choices. Listen to Hey Playwright. <laughs> So on that note, uh, Tori, take a break. I'm gonna say take a break. Take a break tonight. You don't. You don't have to write anything. You know. But are you talking you... to me personally? Yeah. Because I wasn't gonna. Okay. <laughs> All right. So on that note, so long, Tori. Yes. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. You're gonna stay here. It's over. 